John chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please grab one from the Connect desk. We would love for you to have one. Uh, our gift to you, if you have your phone with you, there are lots of Bible apps that are out there. A lot of us use the YouVersion app. Uh, if you have the Crossridge app, you can go in there. There's a little link to the Bible app there. It's a great way for you to be able to follow along. Um, we're in week three of our study of the Gospel of John. This week we're coming to the end of what is known as the prologue section of John. You know, he's one of Jesus' disciples, the one known as John the Evangelist or John the Apostle. He's not John the Baptist. We don't want to get those confused. But he is wrapping up the introduction to his eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And so these 18 verses of this prologue, John is building the platform from which he is going to launch into the narrative the story portion of his gospel. Kind of running with the idea that these super important ideas, these core doctrines to the Christian faith, are necessary for making sense of the stories covering the life and ministry of Jesus that he's about to tell. These ideas, these doctrines, can be boiled down really to one main idea, and it's that Jesus, who to this point in our study has only been known as the Word, he's being revealed today as Jesus, That he, the subject of this book, is the Son of God. That Jesus himself is God. Right? John opened his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And conveying that Jesus is God is the driving force behind this book. You know, toward the end of this gospel, John says that he has written all of these things, and you've read this before, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So believing that Jesus is God himself is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. Now, maybe you're new to church, or you've been hanging out with a friend at Alpha, or you've been hanging out with people who have invited you to the Clova, or maybe they've forwarded you a link to the live stream. Um, This is actually what we believe, that Jesus is God, that through him all of creation came into being. And as we'll be reading today, this God became an in-the-flesh person who walked the earth and showed and taught people what God was like and sacrificed his life to rescue his creation. Now, as we say pretty regularly around here, Crossridge exists to what? You can do this with me. To know Jesus and make him known. That's right. And this is because we believe these things about him. And so many of us have experienced changed lives, or as Jesus puts it, more abundant lives. And like John the Evangelist, we want others to experience the same. That's why these guys are going to Thailand They believe this. Now, there's way more to it than just that. It's not just that simple, but we'll get there. We're going to be spending a long time in this gospel, and I'm excited that we are, and it's my prayer that as we study together, we'll find new and amazing things about Jesus that we didn't know before, maybe some things that we've overlooked or maybe some things that we've actually ignored, and God's going to change our hearts around that. So with that, let's take a look at verses 14 to 18 of chapter 1. I want to invite you to stand with me. As I read this for us this morning. John 1, starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. And this, this word, this, this one that we're talking about today, the word who was in the beginning and who was with God and who was God, the one who through all things were made, who in our passage today is revealed to be Jesus Christ, this word, we're told in verse 14, this word became flesh. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In theological speak, or Christianese, if you will, we, we call this event, the word becoming flesh, we call this the incarnation. And you've likely heard this phrase before, it comes up a lot, especially around Christmas, uh, when we talk about the arrival of baby Jesus, right? No crying he makes away in the maid, that's not biblical, he cried, right? But the incarnation, we get that from the Latin phrase that says, in, and the Latin word in means in in English. So we're, we're, we're doing well there. And caro, which means flesh, in flesh. Now some of you might be more familiar with the Spanish translation of caro is carne, right? I always thought I was saying something really fancy about the prep process or the spices when I would ask for chili con carne. It was much too old when I realized that it was just asking for chili with meat. But incarnate, incarnate, in meat, in the flesh, God became man, human. And not just that, he also dwelt among us. God came to earth and lived with us, or them, as it were, his people. The Greek word used here today, and I'm going to butcher every non-English word that I use today, and there's a few. The Greek word here that is translated dwelt is eskenosin. And it literally means pitched his tent or encamped. And this would have been so familiar to his readers. They would remember reading Exodus 25 to 40 when Israel had been delivered from Egypt and was wandering the desert and they made their way around. They took with them a tent where God's presence would dwell or encamp with them. For us today, this choice of words should also ring in our ears and point us forward to the book of Revelation. Where John, who also wrote Revelation, where he describes the new heaven and the new earth. And he says, behold, the dwelling place, the dwelling place, literally his tent, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell, same root word, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The end goal of God's plan has always been to be with his people. To be their God in person, not via live stream. But we're glad you're here, right? We're glad you are here with us. In person, in a perfect place with no sin, no sickness or loss or sadness or pain. We call this heaven for eternity, right? To show us his glory in its fullness, for us to enjoy it, to bask in it, 
to revel in it. And the Bible tells us that we won't need a temple or a church. The Bible goes so far as to say that we won't even need the sun for light because God, the word, Jesus himself will be all of those things for us. And as we experience this amazing gift of grace forever, he then receives glory, honor, and praise. This has always been his desire when it comes to us. To be with us, his creation. And it's always been his way. Living in relationship. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Like He, he pre-existed time and space in community. Before anything was made, he existed as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His existence is relationship, and we call this the Trinity. These three unique persons, expressions of the one true God. When he created us, his intent and his desire was to be with his people. It's how it was in the garden prior to Adam and Eve's actions that brought sin into the world and desperately injured humankind's relationship with God. And the overarching story contained in the pages of this book tell the story of a God who, though we didn't deserve it, and not just that we didn't deserve it, right, but that we actually deserved the opposite of that, though we didn't deserve it, he took on himself, took it on himself to restore that relationship. And he did this when the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, took the punishment we deserved, died on the cross, defeated death, came back to life, and is now waiting for the fullness of time when he will bring it all together. And those who believe in Jesus, those who believe that he is the Son of God, that he did what is written in the pages of this word, we will dwell with him for eternity. And that's the gospel, right? God created us for a relationship with him. And through Adam, and let's be honest, it's not just Adam's fault. We do a great job of wrecking our relationship with God ourselves. We sinned and broke that relationship. And then he himself, his word, Jesus, became flesh, lived a perfect life, was crucified, dying in our place for the sins that we were guilty of was resurrected, and if we believe that, he offers us a new way to live with the help of his spirit dwelling in us and the promise of eternal life with him. The gospel isn't, as so many have made it out to be, a list of rules. It isn't a political stance. It isn't an opiate for the masses. It's the good news that God is merciful. As we sang, he's slow to anger abounding in steadfast love, and he wants us to know him and to make him known. And so he did what we read here in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came. He drew near. His people could see him. They could hear him. They could touch him. John, the writer of this book, as we'll see later, he's a close personal friend of Jesus. He's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, what a perspective to write this book from. John had a clear understanding of who Jesus was, the Word who was with God and who was God, the one who created everything, including John. The Word became flesh and dwelt not just among us, but for John, with me. 
John spent the last few years of Jesus' life at his side, learning from him, eating with him in a face-to-face relationship. That must have been amazing. Now, I flag that up only to give some insight into John's perspective. You know, having the physical presence of Jesus in our day would be an amazing thing, right? We often talk about that. It's something that many of us long for. And at times, we might even think that things would be so much better if we just had Jesus with us to ask him what to do. And while that would be amazing, we have to remember what Jesus himself says in John chapter 16. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus here, when he says helper, is talking about his Holy Spirit. And for Christians, those who believe in Jesus, his followers, the Holy Spirit Spirit dwells among us, has encamped himself in us. And Jesus says it's better that he go and that the Spirit come. It's better, he says. It's to our advantage. So as much as having Jesus with skin on me seem to be what we need in the moment... We shouldn't short sell what we have. We have the helper. We have God's word, right? A God-inspired revelation of who he is, what he's done, and how he wants us to live. The disciples didn't have that. Those who followed Jesus in the crowds didn't have that. We have a different perspective, and it's not a lesser perspective. But for whatever reason... In God's infinite wisdom, for this time in history, specifically when John is writing, God's plan was this. When we read in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In this moment, God himself stepped into his creation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're going to just bang that out like a lot. You're just going to walk out of here just saying that over and over again. But why? Why did he do this? And I think we see a few things in here. The first I want us to point us to this morning is that he did this to show us the Father and his glory. The Word became flesh to show us the Father and his glory. Verses 14 and 18. We're going to bounce around a bit in this passage. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Uh, Those of you who have been fortunate to travel to London and visit Trafalgar Square, or maybe you're from the area, or actually anybody who's seen a picture of Trafalgar Square, um, you will likely recognize what they call Nelson's Column. So we've got a picture here of Nelson's Column. It's a 150-foot column with a 20-foot statue of Lord Admiral Horatio Nelson at the top. It's quite something, right? It's a grand monument to a key player who was defending England from Napoleon. Now, in his book, The Trivialization of God, Donald McCullough explains that though this monument was nice and all for everybody, it had a fairly major flaw. Frederick Bruner summarizes the story this way when he says, the only problem with the monument was that its pinnacled hero was so high that the viewers below could not see what he looked like. So, Dr. McCullough explained, a six-foot replica of Lord Nelson atop the pinnacle was placed at eye level beneath the pinnacle in order to give sightseers the opportunity of seeing the exalted figure close up. 
This pastor concluded thoughtfully, it is an illustration of what God did for the human race when he gave Jesus the high invisible God come down low in the eye level Jesus, his son, so that we could see what God is like. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's a good surface summary of something that Jesus did in coming to the earth to show us something that we couldn't fully see. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, I have to be honest and tell you that I don't love the ESV translation of this. Um, The ESV is a great translation. Um, It's very accurate, but it's literal and sometimes a little bit harder to read. Like, who are we talking about in this passage and, and where? Right? I think we have the ESV up in there on a slide that you can just look at. Are you reading along in your book? No one has ever seen God. The only God, that like gets kind of a, a thing there. Here's what the Greek says, okay? We're going to look at the Greek, but in English. So you don't have to try to read Greek. It's spelled out like this. God, no one has seen, ever. Only God, the being in the bosom of the Father, that one he explained. I'm really selling this, right? Like, this is helping you. This is really helping you. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which is a great translation, by the way, it puts it like this. Do we have that one? Is it not up there? This is what the CSB says. No one has ever seen God. This one helped me with this. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Just rolls a little easier than the Greek, doesn't it? No one has seen God, but Jesus who has seen God, who is at the Father's side, or even more literally in the Greek, who is from the bosom or the heart of the Father, is one with the Father. This Jesus is God. And he has made him, the Father, known. And we need that. We needed someone to do this because no living person has seen the Father. we felt his spirit. We've experienced his power to save. We've witnessed the effects of his glory We've studied his character and his attributes and his word. He's revealed himself through the prophets. He's revealed himself to us in nature and creation. But there is something about seeing a person face to face that helps us know him in a way that we otherwise couldn't. Now, up to John's day, Israel had spent thousands of years experiencing God, hearing from him, sensing him, relying on him, worshiping him and loving him, but they hadn't seen him. Not like this. In fact, as far as they were concerned, it was impossible to see God in his fullness, in his glory. The original readers of John's gospel would remember reading about what happened when Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, the Lord, said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Right? And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Seeing the Father was not possible. Seeing the Father 
was not possible. But in Jesus, seeing Jesus was seeing the Father. And likewise, knowing Jesus, as we strive to do, is knowing the Father. This was a struggle for the disciples to grasp. Probably for many of us as well. The disciples had spent their entire lives being taught about this God who was separate from creation. And he is. Whose glory is too terrible to be seen, and it is. Who cannot be approached haphazardly, and he shouldn't be. Yet, There they were with Jesus, who was just in his being with them, revealing to them the Father. But they didn't get it, as they rarely do and as we rarely do. John 14, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Right? That's a pretty clear comment there. You've seen me, you've seen God. Get it? Good. Chapter 14, verse 8 continues. Philip then said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. This is where my sarcastic and impatient side comes out, and I imagine Jesus rolling his head back and sighing like, oh, come on, but he's not like that. Jesus isn't impatient or petty I think he heard these words and knew their thoughts and wanted so much more for them. To know the Father and experience life more abundantly. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He just said that. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the accounts of the works themselves. Look, if you know Jesus, you know the Father. Those are Jesus' own words. We know that the question in verse 9 was addressed directly to Philip. We don't want to take that out of context, but it might be worth letting those words land on us for a minute. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Is that our story? Most of you know that I play guitar. Sometimes it might look like I do that with great skill. It might look that way. Now, I'm certainly not a terrible guitar player, but I have been playing guitar since I was 16. So 20 years I've been playing guitar. I should be... I should be way further along than I am now. I was baptized when I was 16. So again, 20 years, give or take. I should be so much further along in my following Jesus. Now, I'm sure I don't speak for everyone in this room, but probably do for a lot of us. We should know him so much more than we do. And the good news is, though, this is not a message of guilt. This is a message of grace. One that's going to give us hope, and and that part's coming, I promise. So don't get weighed down by the guilt here. Stay with me, but carry that with you this morning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us to show us the Father and His glory. Back up to the second half of verse 14 of our chapter. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
This idea isn't unique to John in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Spoken, Word, Son, God, Jesus. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The writer of Hebrews acknowledges the same thing here, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. To see him is to see God's glory. But what does it mean to see his glory? Like when John says we've seen it, what does he mean? We already know that God told Moses what would happen if he saw his glory. It wasn't a good thing. We know that Moses couldn't go into the temple when God's glory was there. When the, his eyewitnesses in the Gospels, right, when, when people with John saw Jesus, he wasn't blazing like the sun. The hem of his robe wasn't filling the temple. When he walked down the street, people weren't falling at his feet, shielding their eyes like Isaiah in the temple, crying, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Well, thankfully, John spells this out for us. Glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did they see in Jesus that was the glory of God? Many things. Many, many things. But namely here in our passage, it's grace and truth. God's glory is full of grace and truth. You could almost say here that God's glory is grace and truth. And this wouldn't have been a new idea to John's audience either. The idea that these characteristics were at the core of the Father's being had long been held by Israel. Back in the original languages again, and I'm sorry about how I'm going to do this, but the phrase that we translate grace and truth is a Greek modernization of the Hebrew phrase chesed vimet. And I'm sure that's exactly right. Two things. Firstly, I said it wrong. Secondly, I'm sorry that I'm bringing you along in this college class that I'm trying to take right now. Chesed vimet, chesed, literally loving kindness or steadfast love. And emet is faithfulness or truth. This is one of the ways the Old Testament regularly referred to God's character. Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Chesed viamet, steadfast love, faithfulness. In the Greek, keratos, kai alithias, grace and truth. These are the same things being talked about here. God's glory is full of grace and truth, is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And as we make our way through the narrative that follows, the stories about the life of our Savior Jesus, we are going to see the evidence of this in every interaction Jesus has as he makes his way to the cross. Every single instance, full of grace and truth. Now, if God's glory is full of grace and truth, he must value these attributes, like a lot. What is it that our world is lacking right now? We don't live in a world that extends grace. We don't live in a world that accepts truth. 
which when you think about it makes heaps of sense, right? When we reject God as king, when we choose not to look to the sun, when we shield our eyes from his glory, we find ourselves lacking his attributes, grace and truth. Instead, we wallow in judgment and untruth. I want to take a slight detour for a second, ask a question. Are we, you, me, us, are we living in the light of God's glory this morning? Are we experiencing grace? I think a lot of us would say yes. I really, really hope so. Are we walking in the truth? You know, are we not letting the lies of the world and the enemy sidetrack us? I I hope so. What a great gift grace and truth are. But what about the other side of this? Are we, you, me, us, are we reflecting God's glory or are we just absorbing it? If we are simply absorbing God's glory, you know, hearing and believing the truth of Scripture, celebrating grace in our time of need, but not reflecting that, instead maybe spreading non-truths, maybe not lies per se, but what about like opinions that maybe we really want to be true, but they're not biblical? If we're judging others for their shortcomings, if we're canceling people, slandering those who disagree with us, Look, if God's glory is embodied in his son and we are his followers, his spirit living in us, should we not be reflecting, exuding his glory, his grace and truth to a world that is desperate for it? I mean, the world says that these things are important, right? We champion grace and truth, but it doesn't actually practice it. What the world needs is something that we have. What are we doing with that? Detour over. Back to the text. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to focus on the grace side of this in just a second, but for a moment, let's take a look at the truth side of his glory. What is truth in this context? Look at John 17, 17. When Jesus is praying for his disciples before he is arrested, he says, sanctify them in the truth. He's talking to his Father. Your word is truth. Your word, same word as the word in John chapter 1, right? God's word is truth. God's word is Jesus. In John 14, Jesus said that he is the way, the what? The truth and the life. Jesus is the word. The word is truth. If we want to know what the truth is, if we have questions about how we are to live, we bring them into the light of The word, God's word, the truth. We put it up against the Bible and we see what it looks like in the light of his glory. We don't hold it up to the world. We don't hold it up to a podcast, to an influencer, to the government, to family tradition, to Oprah's book club, to our friend group, to a subreddit, to our feelings, to the feelings of our kids or those around us. Feelings aren't always the truth. They're very real, right? They have a major impact on our lives. But just because we feel something, it's not necessarily true. We need the truth of God's word. And what is that? It's Jesus and his glory, his word. God's glory is full of grace and truth. And it's embodied in the one and only Son, In Jesus, 
who, as we saw earlier in Hebrews, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The word became flesh and dwelt among us to show the Father and his glory. Now, based on the way that we normally do things around here, our next point should come from verse 15. However, because of the focus that we're putting on the incarnation and our next point and what we're talking about, and also due to the fact that next week Lee is going to be preaching uh, about John the Baptist, and this verse comes up again almost verbatim. So we're going to let Lee handle that next week. So we're just going to pretend that verse 15 is coupled into the next section. Is that okay? No. Okay. You don't care. You don't care. Somebody's going to write an email. The next reason that the word became flesh was to give us grace upon grace. Verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's something that preachers always struggle with when prepping a sermon. And it's also one of my favorite things about sitting through a sermon that I've maybe preached on uh, or heard a sermon on, the way that God's word speaks so differently to all of us in his word at different times, different ways. It's so cool. It also means that I am going to miss something that sticks out to you as vitally important. We're going to let that go. If you can't let it go, you can email me at sam at crossridge.church and I will get back to you as soon as I can. Grace. I've been hearing this word at my house a lot lately, uh, and it's, always, it's not always the nicest sounding word, um, but that's because in addition to our teenagers, Nikki and I currently have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a three-year-old. The three-year-old's name is Grace. She's lovely. She's a joy, but she doesn't always live up to her name. Um, she doesn't extend grace to her siblings. And they even more rarely extend it to her. So the word grace gets, I don't know, whined, shouted, screamed. I don't know. I I digress. Where were we? Right. Fullness. From the fullness, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. When he says we have all, who is he talking about? Just working our way through this verse. It's not just a universal comment. It doesn't mean everyone in the history of the world. And we can assume that he's talking about himself. And those he is writing for, those who were witnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus, but he's also talking about us, those who are to come after, the children of God. If if you were here last week, you'll remember Lee reading from verse 12 of our passage, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. A few minutes ago, we read from John 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer. A few verses later, after the one that we read, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, these being his disciples, the eyewitnesses, the ones around him physically. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is praying that we could be in the Father and Jesus as they are in one another. It's amazing. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Like if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, John is talking about you, about us. We have all received grace upon grace. 
And the beginning of verse 16 tells us that the source of this grace is from Jesus, from his fullness. There's nothing magical about that word fullness, but I think it's something that we maybe don't dwell on maybe enough. We think about it, but for the most part, we believe it. But I want to encourage us today to sit here for a minute and process some of what this might mean. This week, I came across a couple of quotes that caused me to really appreciate the idea of the fullness. Maybe you were already there, but this was awesome for me, so I'm taking you through my process. When referencing this fullness, Martin Luther wrote this. The spring is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything, no matter how much we draw, but it remains an infringed fountain of all grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives of the water that springs into eternal life. Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up ten worlds, so is Christ our Lord, an infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over full of grace. I mean, come on. I mean, you guys know this. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you have walked a life with Jesus and have experienced the fullness of his grace. For some, it's because you've struggled. You know, life hasn't been fair. You've experienced more that brought pain than joy, but God's grace has brought you peace and joy and brought it out of the muck. Some of you have experienced deep reservoirs of grace because you've needed so much to cover up all of your sin. And it does that. His grace is perfect and endless. Some of us have worked so hard to check all the boxes, to look our best and not miss a step, to the point where we have, for the most part, avoided needing grace. Like, grace is there if you really need it. You don't really need it day to day, but you've got it on tap just in case. I mean, you're saved by grace. You know you can't earn your salvation, but you can make a pretty good go at the Christian life without it. The truth is, all of us in this room need the fullness of Jesus from which to receive his grace, and it's there for the taking. Another quote that caught me this week was Kent Hughes when he said, Grace just keeps coming but I doubt if any of us have as much grace as God intended. I love that. He's right, isn't he? From his fullness, we have all received, we all have access to grace upon grace. That's a lot of grace. What does that mean, that grace upon grace? Is this just a stacking of grace or different graces? I'm so glad you asked out loud. Since we've been working so closely with our Greek text this morning, we're going to go and head there again for a bit for some more clarification. The word translated here as upon, grace upon grace, is the word, you ready for it? It's the word anti or anti. And in case you were wondering, it's pretty much the same in Greek as it is in Latin. What does anti mean? Anybody? The opposite, right? Like against grace, against grace. Grace in the face of grace? We don't have to do any grammatical gymnastics to figure out what John is getting at here, which is a good thing. We have a couple of clues that help us here. Anti doesn't have to mean 
the negative against. It doesn't have to mean the opposite. It doesn't mean grace and the opposite of grace. It can also mean in the place of, or instead of, or even simply for. We can say, we have all received grace for grace, or grace in the place of grace. I'm sure you already knew and were way ahead of me. You were parsing the Greek on your way in here, and we're thinking, this is, this is what we're going to do here. The other clue is in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. On the surface, this may not help a ton. But what we see John doing here is pointing to the law, right? The Ten Commandments, the Torah, the set of rules Israel was supposed to live by to remain holy before God. He's pointing to the law and marking it as a gift of grace. But it was an incomplete grace. The law let us know what sin was. That's grace. It was guidelines for living the best way. But the grace that we've received in Jesus, I mean, that's, that's the goods right there. We have all received grace through Jesus, the free gift of God that saves us from sin, that makes us right before him. Grace upon or instead of or in place of grace that came through the law that gives us instruction for holiness. The law was given through Moses, a man, a sinner who's, who needed God's grace as much as we do. But grace and truth, God's glory, again, came through Jesus more than a man. God himself, the infinite source of grace to extend to sinners. It's grace upon grace. It's grace instead of grace. It's grace in place of grace. And we have to remember this. Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. These two instances of grace aren't at odds with each other because Jesus didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. And it's his fulfillment of the law that reconciled us to God. And that's grace, right? Being given something we don't deserve instead of judgment that comes from failing to live up to the standards set by the law. In Jesus, we're given a life worth living on earth an eternal life where we'll experience God's glory to its fullest. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John has been prepping us to read through a narrative in which we will see God's glory. In which we will see his word, his son, Reveal and dispense grace and truth so that we can know what God is like, what he wants from us, how we are to live, and how we are to treat others. Now, because we've not spent much time diving into the specifics of application as to what this might mean for us, I really want to encourage you when you get together with your community groups, there's, oh, I forgot to mention this earlier, we have study guides available that can help you with some questions, uh, places to take notes, some ways to follow along through this. Uh, you can do that for your own personal study. We're also working through that with our community groups. Uh, if you are going through this, I really want to encourage you when you get together to get really, really specific and honest about what this means for you specifically. Question six in your guide, and if you don't have one, grab one afterwards. If you're on the live stream or listening to a podcast, you can go to the episode page on the website, download it. 
Question six in your guide says, what does it mean today to live as people of grace and truth? Dig into that. Lean into that. If you're not in a community group and want to chat this through with someone, call a friend, call the office, grab a coffee with someone. We would love to talk to you. Living in grace and truth allows us to experience God's glory in its fullest sense here on earth. It's not complete yet. That day is coming, but until then, let's immerse ourselves in it, in the freedom of his grace, in the power of his truth, his word, so that we can make him known as we know him more. To close, I want to pray this prayer from a commentary that I read. I've stolen all the good stuff from the commentaries today, but I want to pray this. Father, may we learn to receive grace upon grace so our lives will become richer and more beautiful and more joyful through grace. May we be people who receive grace upon grace and who give out grace upon grace in response to the effects of sin, misery, and horror in this world. Fill us with all your fullness and let us possess it. Grace is ours. We pray you would help us to appropriate this power. Amen.